This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Okay, right here. It says right here in this, this account we have $401,000. Jackpot. Nope, uh, that says you have a 401k account. If you liquidate that right now, you'll have, you know, maybe $5,000. So what happened to the other $396,000? What is wrong with the two of you? Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and how should you place your investments? No, I don't mean what investments should you have. I mean, what types of accounts should you use for each investment you have? Today, to help us talk tax shelters and your financial plan, we welcome the Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning for Morningstar, Christine Benz. And a woman who dreams about tax shelters from Afford Anything, Paula Pant. And a guy who's always hoping the tax shelter doesn't wag the investment dog, our own resident CFP, OG. But that's not all. Halfway through today's discussion, we'll take a quick break to see if Paula Pant can claim a share of first place in our trivia challenge. Wait, is this script correct, Paula? Are you kidding me, Paula? Top of our trivia challenge? My voice can't get any higher than this. Yes, it appears that is a very real possibility. But now, let's introduce a guy who's never sheltering you from your ability to be the best shelterer you can be. It's Joe Saucy Guy. I'm fairly certain Doug is shelterer. Yeah. Yes. Sheltering on top of and in place. and Shelters and shelters. And yeah. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sheltering Friday. I'm Joe Saucy Guy. Ever show money on Twitter, and I'm super excited to announce our gang we have here today. We will introduce our guest of honor last, but let's start with the man across the card table from me, Mr. OG's here. How are you, my friend? I, I don't know how it could end. The, how were you, you, you? Fantastico! Thank you so much for asking, and and you, Joe. How are you? Oh, today? I'm 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 having a very pleasant day. Ah, wonderful! <laughs> Thank you very much. So great, great to hear. Let's talk to the woman on the East Coast who is always having a great day. I think watching watching cranes go down that was pretty horrible. Oof. Uh, <laughs> Paula was recently for people who don't know she was on this show that's been around forever called Inside Edition. Did Inside Edition call you, Paula? They did. They did. They left me. I looked at my phone and I saw a text message and it was like, hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm a producer at Inside Edition. I don't know why, but it never occurred to me to wonder how they had my phone number. Right. I didn't even think about that until days later. I was like, wait a second. How 
How does Inside Edition have my Paula, the producers phone? of Inside Edition have been waiting years to call you. <laughs> it was They've been mad- hoping. <laughs> I was going to be involved in a true crime at some point. <laughs> like- well, for people that don't know, there was a crane on top of a building that was being built and there was a fire and then part of the crane went down. It was a horrible video. Right. Uh, w- when did you notice the, uh, you know, normally you'd say the smoking gun, but in this case, the smoking crane. The smoking crane, right. So it was, uh, I was in my kitchen, which you can, for the, the audience watching on YouTube, is literally this room that I'm right in right there. now, right now. Yes, I was. I was there. I was. Uh, I think it was, it's also. Isn't that also? Wait a minute. Isn't that you? Just to clarify, isn't that also your dining room? Yes, a kitchen, dining room, living yeah, where's room. Where's the living room? Where's the, oh the living room's this, there. This oh. is also the living room. This is the. I live in 600 square feet, and it costs 4,400 a month. Welcome <laughs> to New York. <laughs> I feel like that Mike Birbiglia. Have you heard the Mike Birbiglia joke where he talks about how his. New York apartment's really spacious. He's got room for his mattress, a pencil, and like a cup of water. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I was in uh, my kitchen slash living room slash office making a cup of coffee. It was just after 7.30 in the morning. I look out the window and I see this black plume of smoke just emitting from the skyscraper, from the New York skyline, which immediately brings back 9-11 flashbacks, right? Nobody wants to see yeah. lots of smoke in the, in the New York City skyline. And so the first thing I do is I take out my phone and I immediately start filming. And within 40 seconds, I catch the moment that the crane collapsed. And apparently, I was one of only a small number of people, probably three, four, five people who actually got the moment of the crane collapse. Mm. And so that uh, video ended up getting used by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, NPR, Fox. So it ended up kind of getting used, getting disseminated across uh, all sorts of news agencies. And then Inside Edition contacted me. They wanted to interview me about like – how did you feel about the crane fire? And I was like, oh. How did you feel about the crane <laughs> <Yeah>. fire? <laughs> and the best part was the Chiron, which is the thing at the lower third of the screen, the little Chiron said, Paula Pant shot crane video. <laughs> <laughs> and there's the tombstone. That's how you want to be remembered. That yes, is- that's, that is my legacy. 10 years of building an online brand, and I'm known as shot crane video. And isn't it funny? I didn't ask you about the New York Times or any of those other places. I'm like, you were on Inside Edition? Right, yeah. (laughs) Right. And the woman wondering when the heck we're getting to the actual topic is here from Morningstar. Christine Benz joins us. How are you? Good. Good to see you all. Have you ever shot uh, any crane burning video? I have not shot any action video whatsoever, except for just family home videos. But well, no. thanks for being on the show then, Christine. This is this is all done. If you haven't shot a crane burning video, I don't think you can be on the show. <laughs> she, <she's, laughs> I, I got nothing. <laughs> she's like, is he kidding? What's happening right now? I got my out. But Christine, you wrote a great piece uh, that we're going to reference in our show notes page. People want to follow along. You won't have to, to understand what we're talking about. Uh, we'll have it in our show notes at stackybedjamins.com. But you wrote this piece about taxable accounts, and we're going to get into it in, in a second. But before we get to that, I think we should probably explain to you the rules of the road, if that's okay. Absolutely. All right. Hold on just a second. Here we go. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. 
You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Well, if you're new to Stacking Benjamins, you may not know that I've tried out a lot of personal finance apps. I like to be a guinea pig and try out all these things so I know what I'm talking about when it comes to uh, what's helpful and what isn't helpful. And uh, the app that I've used the longest has been Monarch Money. And it's because Cheryl and I, my spouse, were able to collaborate together. We can work on our goals together and our budget and our goals are right next to each other on the app. It is clearly the next generation of personal finance apps. So what is it? Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, because you're a stacker, you'll get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. I love the fact that we get to collaborate. I love the fact that it's customizable. And I also love that it's this ad-free privacy you can trust. They never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch myself, I totally get why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, because you're a stacker, you're going to get an extended 30-day free trial to try it out like I try out many different apps. And this one was sticky for me because, well, you'll see when you try out the 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash Benjamins for your extended 30-day free trial. All right, Christine, you all clear with all that? Absolutely. Ready to go. All right. We've got Christine Benz, Paula Pant, OG neighbor Doug. So let's get rolling. As I mentioned earlier, our piece comes to us from Morningstar and Christine wrote this piece and that headline says, which accounts to keep out of your taxable account? And I realized Christine, a lot of people don't really think about this, but what was what was the impetus for writing this piece on this particular day when you wrote it, June 30th of this year? Was there some idea you had or something that happened in the news that made you go, you know, this should be our topic today that I write about? Well, one issue that has come up again and again over the past several years is that Morningstar, where I work, has a lot of information about mutual funds. And one thing we've seen with mutual funds, traditional mutual funds, not exchange traded funds, is that some of them look really poor from the standpoint of holding in a taxable account. And specifically, we've had kind of a bad convergence of events for actively managed stock mutual funds, where there's been this stampede out of such funds and into index funds and exchange-traded funds. And that has caused this negative cycle where funds have been required to sell stock to pay off departing shareholders 
And that has caused them to realize capital gains, which in turn, they're legally required to pay out to shareholders annually. So it's just been this bad cycle for fund holders where they've gotten socked with these capital gains distributions at the end of each year. And if they own the fund in a taxable account, that means an additional tax bill. So that's been one reason why I've wanted to shine a light on this issue, simply because we have had just a really bad sequence of events for taxable investors. And I should clarify here, if you are investing in some sort of a tax-deferred account, an IRA, a 401k, something like that, you don't have to worry about this. This is not an issue for you. Put whatever you want inside your account. But this does matter if you have a taxable brokerage account, a non-retirement account. That's where you've really got to sit up and take notice of the composition of your investments. And the name of the game is to try to reduce these taxable distributions. You even noted in your piece before we really get rolling here that uh, Vanguard gave people a really big surprise (laughs) just not that long ago. Couple of years ago, right? This was with their target date series, and Vanguard has actually a superb lineup of target date funds, which are kind of one stop funds for people who want to be quite hands off with their investments. But due to some administrative rigmarole behind the scenes, the funds ended up making a big capital gains distribution. And some shareholders indeed did hold the funds in their taxable accounts and were sucked with these big tax bills. So that was a a particularly bad uh, story in the realm of a number of bad stories in terms of taxation. Well, and part of this, OG, is the issue that you may not know, to Christine's point, you may not know that much ahead of time that your fund has these capital gains happen. When when should people be, be on the lookout for these surprise capital gains if you think they might be coming? Well, I think this particularly was impactful last year, right? Where the market went down, we're, we're all kind of conditioned to pay taxes when we make money, right? It's like, well, it's just kind of part of the part of the thing we we do. If you sell a house and you, you know, rental property and you make some money, you pay some taxes with that. If you have a stock and it goes up in value and you sell it, you pay some taxes on it. The problem is compounded when the market goes down, like 2022 was, and like Christine was talking about, there's all these distributions that happen, you know, kind of behind the scenes and you don't even know what's, you know, that you're going to get hit with this. And then you get a capital gain distribution you get a capital gains tax on your fund where you didn't take any money out. And you're like, how, wait, how, how am I getting, how am I paying taxes on this? I lost, you know, I'm down 22% last year in my, in my, in my mutual fund. And now I got to pay X dollars to taxes. And a lot of times, where do we pay that tax from? We now we got to sell the mutual fund to pay the tax, which generates a tax, another tax, which is, which is kind of, kind of rough. Most of them, I would say, Christine, of course, knows this better than I, I think. Um, but most mutual funds distribute their capital gains stuff toward the end of the year. So think, you know, Thanksgiving time or points thereafter. And many fund companies will kind of sort of telegraph it a little bit, send out some notification. And you can I don't know that they're super open and public about it. You can dig for it maybe around Halloween time or points thereafter where they say, hey, we don't know exactly how this is going to turn out, but we're pretty sure this is what it's going to look like on such and such a day. And so you've got a little bit of time to prepare if for whatever reason, there's a pretty big, pretty big gain coming. Christine talked about the stampede out of uh, actively managed funds, and it truly has been. But OG, if somebody is looking to buy an actively managed fund, I think I hear what you're saying is if you're thinking about buying an actively managed fund in October, maybe better make sure you know what the capital gains situation might be because you might be buying into a bunch of gains that you don't even know about. 
Yeah. I mean that, and I don't know why you would be buying into any actively managed <laughs> mutual fund at any point. I mean, active or passive kind of your prerogative, but just, just the, I mean, purely just on the tax side of things, why you wouldn't use an ETF instead of a mutual fund at this point is beyond me. Paul, a lot of our stackers are new to this whole tax game. If I'm looking at taxes in my investments, what taxes should I be considering? Should I be thinking about as I'm now going to start looking through my taxable accounts going, um, where might I get hit? What are the taxes that I should be on the lookout for? Well, take a look out for any taxes on dividends, because that's going to be fairly steep. Any dividends generated from any assets that you hold, take a look at capital gains tax, short-term and long-term. Take a look overall at how you can, if especially if you're new to the game, how you can maximize the number of tax shelters available to you. Uh, a lot of this can be avoided first and foremost if you simply sidestep the whole taxable brokerage account thing by stuffing as much money in, as you can into tax shelters. And I think a lot of people don't know that your HSA, for example, you know, it is a tax shelter. Even if you don't expect to have a lot of health-related expenses, you can essentially use it as a, sort of a de facto additional retirement account by simply leaving money in there until you reach retirement age. Yeah. Christine, did I step on something you were going to say? Were you going to say something? No, I was going to add though, you know, sometimes people have these, what I call serial capital gains distributors in their portfolio where a fund year after year has been making these big distributions. And so my point there would be check your cost basis on the fund. If you've been reinvesting those capital gains distributions, that increases your cost basis. So when you sell, it actually alleviates the taxes that you'll owe at the time you sell. So I've written before that a tax-efficient makeover, if you have this situation where you've got these holdings that are inefficient from a tax standpoint, because you've been effectively kind of prepaying your taxes, undoing that is apt to be less costly than you might think. So it comes back to checking your cost basis. If you own a mutual fund, compare it to the current net asset value of the fund. And if there's a big spread, well, maybe that's reason to take pause before making a sale. But if those the two things are fairly close together, that suggests that the tax bill due upon sale of that fund not is as big a deal uh, then later. Not that big a deal. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's have you start us off, by the way, uh, shining a light on some of these you know, you talk about some of these offenders every year, right? You've got right. a list of some of them. You started off and you mentioned this already with target date funds. Can you explain to some of our stackers about why a target date fund might have a higher tax load than other funds? Sure. And I wouldn't say just target date, even though they do tend to be pretty tax inefficient. Any sort of balanced fund, anything that's combining stocks and bonds. Would that include and like of a, I'm sorry, would that include like a robo advisor type fund then too? Well, some robo-advisors are a little bit different in that they explicitly manage to reduce the tax drag. Okay. So it, it would be hard to make a blanket statement about robo-advisors because some of them specifically, that is their value add, is doing things in a tax-efficient way. But anytime you're looking at a managed type product that you're buying, where you're bundling your investments together with other investors... There you can run into a little bit of tax trouble for two reasons. One is that most of these kind of balanced funds or target date funds are holding a combination of stocks and bonds. Bonds kick off what's considered ordinary income tax, which is taxed at a higher rate. So it's taxed at your 
income tax rate, basically. And so they hold bonds. And then the other knock against them is that typically they're rebalancing back to some target allocation, whether it's 50-50 or if it's target date fund, it's getting progressively more conservative and more bond heavy. So what that means from a tax standpoint is that they're selling appreciated equities typically, and they are paying little bits of taxes along the way or shareholders in them are. So those are the two things that make balanced funds not ideal candidates for a taxable account. There are good workarounds. Vanguard has an excellent tax-managed balanced fund that's explicitly for taxable accounts, but most balanced funds, most target date funds are sort of intended for an IRA, a 401k. They are not managed with regard to tax efficiency at all. Yeah. And I can't wait to get into solving some of these problems. And before we dive too far into that, OG REITs are on Christine's list here. Uh, Talk about REITs, OG. If that doesn't fit in a taxable account, where does it fit? A lot of them are required to distribute a, a portion, a substantial portion of their earnings every year in the form of dividends which is odd because also a lot of them don't actually make enough money to <laughs> to pay dividends. So they're kind of sort of turning your money into another way to tax you on your own money as they return it to you. But if you're going to have real estate and you're not going to own the property itself, I actually think dividends are not the world's ending place to get income. I mean, out of all the hierarchy, I think probably, Christine, you wrote about this. The worst place is ordinary income, right? Interest income and that sort of thing. Dividends, you can have some uh, flexibility with, but in REITs in particular, the income is generally not going to be qualified. So there's different types of dividends and how the dividends are paid and by what company the dividends are paid are going to change the tax status also for it. So you're, you're getting a lot of income, a lot of, a lot of dollars automatically taxed at your uh, dividend tax rate, which can be zero, but probably is closer to 15 and maybe for some of us 20 or 23. So Again, any place that you can, I think the overarching theme here is any place that you can hold on to that money and then be in charge of when you uh, decide to have the tax bill paid is going to be better for you versus you know having the fund company or the investment decide for you every December. That's a good argument, I think, for holding. If you have some sort of high dividend paying investment, or maybe you own a basket of stocks that pay dividends, the problem from a tax standpoint is that you don't have control right? You are getting those dividend payments in which you owe taxes year in, year out. Not a big deal if you need the income, but if you are in accumulation mode, especially, it suggests to me that if you have slots in your tax sheltered accounts, use those for the dividend payers and ideally, you know, focus on capital gains producing investments in your taxable account. So there's a great spot for, say, a total market index exchange traded fund. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I also want to mention, you know, we're talking real estate, a REIT in a taxable account, maybe to your points, not that great an idea, but the opposite's true for other types of real estate. Oh, gee, if you're buying a rental property, putting that in your IRA <laughs> comes with a whole different <laughs> basket of challenges that yeah. we want to make sure we avoid. And if I'm buying real estate, it's just an exceptional way to have a capital loss. That's how I... <laughs> That's my that's my recent experience with uh, Paul has got a course coming out soon to help you solve that problem. Oh, gee. Yeah. No, I was going to say we made money on the real estate, but along the way, we, you know, we lost them and lost money every every year. So it was great. It's the way the taxes work. You can't write it off. So, yeah, if you're going to own individual property, obviously, 
there's a great example of something that's not going to pay a dividend, right? If you own an apartment building, you're not going to get a dividend on your apartment building. You're going to get the appreciation on that. And then, and to Christine's point, you get the opportunity to decide, okay, now I want to, now I want that capital gain to, to materialize. And with real estate, of course, you have some other flexibility. You can see some income off the tenant though. Uh, yeah, you could. Uh, absolutely. I mean, that's the goal, right? Is to sure. generate income. Uh, you know, I, I don't have any personal experience with that, but allegedly it happens. <laughs> that's the conventional thinking. <laughs> you know, I mean, from a business standpoint, but there is a big difference though with income that's coming from a business where, again, there's so much more flexibility associated with a P&L. And it's like I have rental income and I ha- now I have expenses that are tied to that income that I can use to offset that income. That's, that's a whole different type of income than just, you know, going, here's a check for $20,000 from your, you know, 500 grand in a brokerage account. And, and, and you got, you know, twenty thirty thousand $30,000 of dividend income. And, and all of a sudden now you owe seven, $8,000 a year in taxes, just, just for making money. There's another conundrum on this list, Paula, which Christine lists bonds could be problematic. Mm-hmm. You know, on one side, you think about non-IRA money is the first line of defense that we can go to. So we want to have very conservative stuff there. Bonds, very conservative. But if they're not municipal bonds, whether you get these tax advantages or if they're not partly qualified, you run into tax problems. So how do we how do we shuffle, do the bond shuffle where we're keeping our low-risk stuff in hand where we can get at it first before the up and down stuff, our, mm-hmm. our stocks, our real estate but at the same time, avoid tax. Right. Fundamentally, what you're asking about is the interplay between asset location and asset allocation, right? Yes. And again, don't let the tax tail wag the decision dog. But if the tax inefficiency of bonds are significant enough that you you want to rethink your asset allocation and you want to be conservative with what's outside of your tax shelters, you could at least consider, and you should talk to a financial advisor about this, more of a barbell allocation, where you hold cash equivalents in hand uh, for the most conservative element of your portfolio and keep some riskier assets in your portfolio. Uh, there, are, there are pros and cons to that, you know, sure. but it's, it's something to consider if you don't want to, if for whatever reason, whether tax or otherwise, you don't want to be holding on to too many bonds. Another way to do it is simply uh, to lean more heavily on, on things like tips to go into laddered CDs, to diversify to diversify the various more conservative elements of your portfolio. Oh, gee, I know you're a big fan of that barbell approach, but Christine, I know one of your other favorite topics to talk about besides this one is retirement income strategies. It's something mm-hmm. I think not enough people talk about. We talk about how we put it in. We don't talk enough about how we're going to actually take it out. How have you worked around this kind of bond conundrum between a taxable account and having your money available when you want it? Yeah, in retirement, it gets a little bit more real, right? When you're actively drawing your cash flows from your portfolio, I think as retirement approaches, it helps to be super thoughtful about kind of figuring out and here, a you know, financial advisor, tax advisor can really be uh, money well spent in terms of strategizing about where you'll go for cash on a year to year basis. Kind of the traditional sequence of withdrawals that everyone has heard about is that you would start with taxable in terms of your withdrawals, then move on to traditional tax deferred, then leave your Roth to last because they are generally the most advantageous 
assets to hold and also for your heirs to inherit. Whereas those taxable accounts, even though we like the flexibility that comes along with them, you are taxed on your capital gains and dividends as you go along. So that's sort of the intuition but behind exhausting them first. When you talk to actual financial planners doing this work, they say, well, you really wouldn't want to be so methodical where you would exhaust one balance and then move on to the next in reality, in a, in a given year, most retirees will want to probably take a little bit from taxable, a little bit from tax deferred with an eye toward reducing the tax bill over the whole of the retirement life cycle. So it gets a little bit complicated, yeah. which is why I say, unless you're super comfy with this topic, get a, lo- get a little bit of advice to help model this out. Well, I know, oh, gee, she's singing off your song sheet right there because tax staying tax diversified because you don't know the future is kind of something you emphasize quite a bit. It's interesting that we're talking about this because I just read an investment news article from Ed Slot where he said he wants to completely give up on tax deferred accounts. Like tax rates, you know, his belief Make it is- it all Roth. Hmm. Yeah, all Roth all the time. You like just, there's no benefit in tax deferred accounts at all, or, you know, tax, well, pre-tax accounts, I guess, better way to say it, you know, based on where, where he projects tax rates to be. But the reality is, is that there's real benefit in having the flexibility of all of those things. You know, the the idea of- tax deferral is to pay taxes at a at a more advantageous rate, right? So you defer it today at today's rate and you pay it in the future. And uh, one of the ways to do that is to have resources outside of those taxable accounts so that your tax deferred accounts. So you can, you can say, okay, well, let me convert this money at my 10% bracket so that, so, you know, into this, you know, tax-free side where I deferred it at 20 or whatever the case may be. But, uh, but you have to have the flexibility along the way. Coming up after the break, we talked about really what's at stake uh, tax-wise by having your investments in the wrong place. I think a a lot more friction than many of our stackers uh, thought maybe before they heard this, uh, this. But tactically, how do we actually get this done? How do we move our stuff into the right places? We're going to ask our panel that. But before we get there... On Fridays, if you're brand new to the Stacky Benjamin Show, we have a year-long competition going on between our three frequent contributors, uh, my co-host OG, Paula, and Len Penzo, who, Christine, you are filling in for Len Penzo from LenPenzo.com. And that means good news and bad news, Christine. You want the good news first or the bad news? Uh, Give me the bad news. Well, the bad news is, is unfortunately, you're going to have to guess first because you're in first place. Uh, you are- How did I get in first place? Oh, <laughs> Len's in first place. Yes, because okay. uh, you are Team Len Penzo. So, no, of course, you would have been, been way in first place if it was just you and not Len. Come on. Uh, you and Team Len is, are at 11 points. For I totally agree with Doug earlier. I don't know how this happened, but Paula, who is- hyper intelligent in every other aspect of her life has a history of being in last place in this thing. But somehow this year, Paula's got 10. Paula's one point away from being, how did this happen, Paula? What can I say? It was skill. It was uh, training. It was, it was the fact that I was on sabbatical for the first six months of the year. And so other people, alternates were playing uh, for me on my behalf up until about like a few weeks ago. I, I, but, I only came back, uh, I came back to Stacking Benjamins, what, a month ago? It, so, yeah, June. Yeah. 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 So, but, exactly. Well, I, I came back off of my sabbatical a month ago. So, uh, so I haven't had time to blow my lead yet. She just won last <laughs> but, week. But, but I think you've built it because OG is at seven. Right? You and OG were tied when you came back and now 
So Lena has 11, Paula has 10, OG has seven. So to see whether uh, Christine's going to help Len build the lead, Paula's going to pull into a tie for first, or OG's going to decide it's go time. It's it's coming on the third quarter of the year. We need a trivia question. So Doug, what do we got this week, man? Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and today we're talking tax shelters. So let's chat about one place where the taxes sometimes get really confusing. Real estate. Airbnb is turning 15 years old today. You know, I remember the first time I used Airbnb. Well, you know, it wasn't so much an Airbnb as it was me falling asleep at a stranger's house at 2 a.m. Well, actually, it wasn't so much me sleeping over as it was stumbling home after a great night at the Sizzler and crashing through the back door of some random house after too many of those super potent cocktails they served down there. God, what was it? It was, um, it's the one where they, they na- it's named after like a famous person, you know, um, Arnold, not Arnold Palmer, uh, uh, Sh- Shirley Temple. It was, Sh- God, I was just pumped full of Shirley Temples that night. Woo! Couple of those and I am lit up. Well, let's just say this guy, might have caused a big misunderstanding by sleeping in the wrong bed that night. So uh, I handed the family a few bucks on the way out the door. Now, honestly, how does my story differ from most of your stays at an Airbnb? But back to today's question. Airbnb was actually named because of the air mattress the founders put up for rent on their living room floor. What might have been called heaven back then for the average Airbnb user looking for a cheap roof over their heads would now just be another one-star review. Back in that first year of business, Airbnb bookings paired about 400 guests with lodging for the night. By Airbnb's 10th birthday in 2018, on average, and this is my question, I know you've all been tracking along really well so far, By Airbnb's 10th birthday in 2018, on average, how many seconds did it take Airbnb to lock in 400 bookings? I'll be back right after I write another apology note to that family. Just talking about it again reminds me of what I did to their bathroom. That's so bad. All right. Uh, let's, I, I don't even want to ask, uh, let's do the happy birthday, Airbnb. Uh, Paula, when's the last time you stayed in an Airbnb? Ooh, uh, right around graduation. So that would have been May in May. Yeah. 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 On our trip to Spain, we Airbnb did Christine big on Airbnb. You know, I haven't been, uh, to date, uh, although I will say we are doing a, a related, property management scheme for a month in February of this uh, year. Uh, but um, yeah, not scheme? big on Airbnb. Ski- it sounds underhanded. Or you got some <laughs> scheme. You got some gig you're working in Atlantic City. What are you doing? It does sound shifty, Christy. Just renting a place in a warm spot for the month mm. of February for these Chicagoans. So yes. And It'll true story, uh, OG stays at Airbnbs as long as they're called the Four Seasons. Yes. Absolutely. We could also slum it with the Ritz Carlton <laughs> right. if necessary. We each put our guest on the spot first, but uh, you get first crack at this, Christine, which I guess is the good news. How many seconds does it take Airbnb to uh, lock in 400, uh, 400 uh, what do we call them? Lodging bookings. stays or bookings. Bookings. reservations? Yeah. 400 bookings. How many seconds? I'm going to say 20 seconds. 20 seconds she locks in. Uh, so Paula, what do you think of that? Okay. 
the nature of the question, by virtue of phrasing it as seconds, it creates the impression that the answer must be under 60. Otherwise, the question would have been phrased as minutes. Unless you're trying to pull a fast one and the answer is actually like, what? you know. <laughs> would we do that to 2,000 seconds, Us? right? <laughs> um, but I'm going to assume that you're not that clever. Ouch. Or that you're not that schemey. You're not that <laughs> schemey. Clever was right. And the fact that you have phrased it as seconds indicates that the answer is less than 60. I'm going to go with 45. 45 seconds. Yeah. All right, OG. We've got 20 seconds. We got 45. What are you thinking? This is 2018. Yeah, I got to take the under. I'm thinking that they have to have some, I mean, I don't even know, a million bookings a year maybe? Is that is that a lot? I don't even know. At, at 500,000 bookings a year, how many seconds are in a minute? 3,600, right? So if it was... Four. Wait, what? <laughs> what? Is that why time feels so slow to me? seconds in a minute. <laughs> oh, no, 60 seconds in a minute. That's 3,600 seconds in an hour. Oh, thank you for that, Paula. <laughs> that totally changes my math. <laughs> Anyways, I'm going to just take the under. I think uh, Airbnb was, was cranking it. Um, so I'll take everything south of 19 seconds, 19.99 and under. 19.99 and I under. I should probably statistically take the over because there's infinitely more seconds over 46 as there are under 20, but, uh, but alas, I will take, uh, I will take 19. Screw it. All right. Christine's got 20, uh, OG, uh, caps are off at the kneecaps at 19.9 and Paula's got 45. We'd love to tell you who's right, but we're going to wait just a second while you guys all come up with your own answer stackers. We'll be right back. Well, you know, when I think about Navy Federal, I think about the veterans that have done so much for our country. And I also think about some of our active service members. want to say a special shout out to uh, my nephews, Colin and Nathan, who are both in the Navy. Colin is stationed outside Seattle, Washington on a submarine. And my nephew, Nathan, is in South Africa as an air traffic controller. And in Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants you also to celebrate members, many of whom go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. It's all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their family are eligible for Navy Federal membership. They offer 24-7 help from their U.S.-based member service. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate to see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Well, don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment's the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words... Your money's breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money in the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit betterment.com to get started. 
Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Christine, you started this off at 20 seconds. How are you feeling? Pretty good? I'm feeling okay. Not great. Uh, why is that? Because OG took the under at 19.9? Pretty much, yep. <laughs> yeah. That is the problem Len runs into every week, Christine, when you got to go first. Uh, that's, right. that's the bad news about being in first place. OG at 19.9, feeling good? No. <laughs> Not at all. So, Paula, that must mean you feel great if OG feels horrible. You know, I don't know. I mean, on one hand, I do. Ha I have the widest of the ranges. On the other hand, uh, having no idea what the answer is, I mean, it might be one second. Who knows? And I think over time, you probably learn not to trust your gut so much because you've thought on many occasions <laughs> yeah. that you were doing well, and that wasn't the case. So one well, normally exactly. would learn by now. Yes. Is, it, is it today? Uh, Doug, what's our, what's our answer, man? Hey there, stackers. I'm Shirley Temple Chugger and designated driver advocate, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. You know what's nice? The friendship I've made with that family that accidentally spent the night with that fateful day over a decade ago. Sure, I call and they say things like, you again? But I know what they're really saying. Oh, Doug, you again. It just warms the heart to know you've truly touched someone. Here was today's trivia question. Airbnb booked 400 lodgings in their first year in business 15 years ago. By their 10th birthday in 2018, how long did it take them, in seconds, to book 400 lodgings? The answer? Well, Airbnb, I'm not gonna tell you right away, am I? Airbnb's notoriety had grown a ton by 2018 to the point that Airbnb had become synonymous with some people as a true hotel alternative experience, you know, plus a laundry list of household chores to do before you check out and booking fees that Marriott could never get away with. But that's a whole different show. Airbnb has become so famous that by 2018, they were booking on average 400 lodgings every I'm not just going to give it to you. I can't do it just yet. But I will say this. Paula was off by 75 seconds. OG was off by 101 seconds. And Christine was off by just 100 seconds. So who has won? It seems like the earth is wobbling just a little bit worse than normal because the answer is 120 seconds and Paula was the closest. Unbelievable. It was every... What is happening? Every two minutes. Every two minutes. What is happening? They would book 400 and uh, yes, Paula, would we mess with you? Of course we would. We'd, we'd phrase it as seconds. But uh, what, Paula, tied for the wow. lead. Wow. You're here on a big Amazing. day, Christine. This is a huge moment. I don't know if you realize what a huge moment this is. Well, I have to apologize to Len too for blowing his lead. <laughs> Oh, Len would have blown it on his own, so he's, <laughs> he, he is fine there. Time for the second half of this discussion. Back to business, people. And the second half is brought to you by DepositAccounts.com. Paula Pant, you know what happens at DepositAccounts.com? You find out that the normal deposits you make are nowhere near the best in class? Maybe, Ooh. but... Deposit. <laughs> I've never stopped in my tracks and you totally stopped me. <laughs> at DepositAccounts.com, you will find that... All the different interest rates out there on savings accounts, checking accounts, money market funds, and CDs are ranked head-to-head -head on many, many different banks. And in fact, let's do it right now. Let's go to depositaccounts.com. And on the day we're recording this, which is uh, just over a week before you hear it, top 1% of all savings accounts on 275,000 different rates 
Top 1% paying 4.59 savings accounts. National average, 0.43 if you look at all of them. CD rates, 1% average, 5.49%. National average, only 3.61. If we look at money markets today, top 1%, 4.47. National average, 0.72. These would have changed by the time you heard it. So go to depositaccounts.com and check out comparisons of over 11,000 banks and credit unions all for free. All right, let's dive into the second half here. Paula, it seems to me... Mm-hmm. based on this discussion that we're having, that you could look at all the different types of accounts you have then and go, okay, I'm going to put this one in my IRA. I'm going to leave this one out of my IRA. I'm going to put this one in my IRA. I'm going to leave this one out. You could redistribute and almost like redo your asset allocation just based on taxes. Is there any any downside of that? A uh, couple of downsides. One is that depending on how you track your asset allocation, and how you track your rebalancing, it might just make rebalancing a little bit more complicated. The other is if you you and a spouse have a combined asset allocation between y'all's portfolios, that could also make things even more complicated because now you've got two different sets of humans with different accounts to track. You know, you might have stuffed all of your high dividend paying assets and your REITs and your bond funds into like, you know, these accounts over here. And then yeah. you've, you know, you've put more tax efficient assets into these accounts over there. Um, and it's just, it's as a, as a managerial practice, um, it can just be a little bit harder to like see everything in, in one dashboard and figure out how you're doing and rebalance accordingly. Um, and then if you were to get divorced, then it would really be like a cluster F of like, all right, what are we doing here? So, yeah. So I think the complexity, the sh- short answer is complexity. I I just uh, gave a complicated answer to describe the concept of complication. <laughs> but sometimes, Christine, this could make it less complicated because I think what it spurs, if you do it this way, it can spur this great conversation around which investment am I going to touch first, right? Which I think for, you know, your retirement, uh, um, your retirement income scenarios is a great conversation to have. Well, absolutely. But, you know, a key point I would make on this front is that if you're looking at this and you're listening to us and you think, well, I should do some repositioning to make my taxable account more tax efficient. I think it's really important to remember that you're kind of paying attention to two sets of tax bills. So you have that annual tax bill related to your investments. And if your investments are tax unfriendly, that will mean that you, you know, you might have these serial capital gains distributors that we talked about, or you maybe have a REIT fund inside a taxable account. They're kicking off distributions. You want to fix that? Well, the problem is if those investments have appreciated in value since you purchased them, that selling them to address this tax inefficiency could itself trigger a tax bill. So that, I think, is a crucial consideration as you embark on any repositioning. And and then, of course, as you said, Joe, you'd want to think about your ultimate use of the funds. And so you would want to position your more liquid assets, ideally, in those funds where you would expect to tap them earlier in in your distribution years. You know, th- that makes me think that maybe the first thing I have to do is take a look at those uh, those capital gains and exactly what I would owe ahead of time before I move anything. Like I'm thinking almost like a tax audit, right? I'm thinking a spreadsheet as, right. as, as you're talking, where I know what the tax bill is going to be if I do this. 
But but that notwithstanding, I, I started thinking, you know, earlier on, you talked about a lot of financial planners, Christine, talking about Roth IRAs and leaving those for later because there's no there's no requirement of distribution. I can I can save that money and maybe get even more aggressive there. But I think on the other side of that, if I don't have if I'm not using a Roth IRA that much right now and I open up the Roth IRA, if I've had that if I've had that open for five years, I can then move money in and out of that. I could use some of these investments as short-term stuff inside my Roth, have it available inside my Roth. Is there a problem with that type of a strategy, moving some of this just to a Roth so that I have it available if I end up needing it? Well, good point. So you can do all the repositioning you want within your tax-sheltered accounts, whether Roth or traditional tax-deferred. So you could just go nuts making changes to position them to support your eventual distributions. I think that's a key point here, that if you are holding tax-sheltered accounts, none of this, this that we're talking about related to tax efficiency really matters to you. Yeah. Oh, gee, uh, with what Christine's talking about, about you may pay some taxes making these moves, shifting things into the right buckets. It also brings up there may be some fees out there that people might be looking at. What are some of the fees I might have to worry about if I'm going to move stuff from bucket A to bucket B? Well, ultimately, you know, if your mutual funds or if your investments are held at different places, there could be, you know, each one of those places could have individual cost structures associated with making changes to your asset allocation or repositioning those. Um, generally speaking, most of the big investment firms, your Fidelities and Schwab's of the world, which I guess it's just basically now Fidelity and Schwab, um, since <laughs> since TD is uh, going bye-bye in 15 days, uh, have have transaction-free type scenarios. So it's unlikely that you're going to pay, pay commissions or have a lot of cost to do that. But I think that ultimately the way that you want to kind of approach this is is this just a symptom of, you know, again, trying to like optimize to the nth degree, but not solving the actual problem, which is I don't, I'm not saving enough money for my goals, right? I think all of this is kind of icing on the cake. And sometimes we get so focused on cost structure, you know, internal costs of mutual funds or internal costs of our ETFs or asset allocation or tax strategies. And all of these are super important to do, but these are like the pinnacle of the pyramid of, of what we're trying to do. If you're sitting there going, all I can do is save 50 bucks a month for my retirement, it doesn't matter where you put it, you know, from a tax standpoint. Like you need to be saving $500 a month. Like that's where, you know, a lot of your focus is. And I think the other thing to consider too is if you start building toward uh, or building an allocation that is more tax efficient, is it okay to recognize that for a period of time you'll be inefficient? but then eventually have enough money that that inefficiency is such a small percentage, right? You don't necessarily have to like go out and redo all of this stuff. If you just start building it in the right place moving forward, especially if you're young, you could say, well, geez, I didn't do this right for the first 10 years. I'm 30, but for the next 30, I'll get it right. By the time you're 60, the inefficient stuff will be such a small percentage of the efficient stuff. It won't even matter. So be careful spending a lot of time on this if some of the other things aren't handled appropriately. I got another question that I'm thinking some stackers might be just yelling at their device, ask this. So I'm, a, I'm asking it for that reason. If I've got a particular stock or thing I'm hanging on to, I want to move it from my taxable account to a Roth IRA or an IRA. Oh, gee, is it possible to just transfer it in kind over to those accounts so that I can shelter it? Or do I have to sell? Hmm. 
Well, that's custodian specific. I can tell you that I've not seen it happen because of the the valuation differences, minute by minute, kind of second by second as you're moving it. There's no obligation for Fidelity to say, hey, uh, I want to move this today. They don't necessarily have to move it that nanosecond. I'm sure there's a way to do it, but I've had this come up a number of times as we've tried to tried to move uh, pre kind of like pre IPO stuff. You know, pull the yeah. um, uh, the Peter Thiel deal, right? Where you're <laughs> trying to get all of your pre IPO stock into your Roth, and we've had some pretty good resistance with the major firms. So, Christine, maybe you have a better answer for this. Have you seen it been able to work? I think sometimes it can work. Um, the context I've seen it in is in the context of people who are retired over age 73 now and subject to required minimum distributions where they've met their RMD but wanted to hang on to the stock. And that can be particularly valuable if you think that the stock is very cheap for some reason. So effectively, you're extricating yourself from the stock at a fairly low tax bill, but that's kind of a niche case. The point I would make is that if you're moving money from a taxable account to a tax-deferred account, it seems to me that you'd still owe taxes at the time of that transfer, even if you your goal was to maintain the same number of shares in the tax-deferred account, I think the tax bill would be what it is. That's something to keep in mind. And then, of course, you'd also be subject to the contribution limits that apply to IRAs each year. Yeah. Yeah. I I didn't think of it from the logistical standpoint, which is it doesn't matter if you sold it or didn't sell it. The IRS is still going to look at this and go, well, you just took this asset that was you know, had some built-in gains or something, and now you've you've moved it. We're going to we want our pound of flesh right now. So. Exactly. And, you know, I will say periodically, I have my IRA living alongside my taxable brokerage account and annually do those transfers. And it actually counts as a sale, you know, when I execute that transfer from my yeah. taxable account into into the IRA, it's classified as a, as a sale. Right. Paula, on a different topic, I'm thinking on Afford Anything, you often talk about thinking about how you're actually thinking. Right. Uh, right. How are you actually thinking about this? We talked earlier about some of these positions you might want to move, mm-hmm. but as Christine said earlier, the tax bill might be huge if you make that move. So how, how would you think about the thinking around, do I leave it the way it is mm-hmm. versus take the tax hit today? Is there some crossover point that you're building in your brain as you're making that discussion for our stackers out there? Sure. I would think about what is an hour of your time worth? In terms of if you were to work a few extra hours and bill a few extra freelance hours or put in a few extra hours at your primary job in order to to aim for promotion or outsource an hour of your time to do lawn care, right? What is an hour of your time worth? How much of your time or how much much do you pay, pay the babysitter, you know? What's an hour of your time worth? How many hours is this going to take? How much of a cognitive load is this going to carry? And how does that compare to the actual dollar amount that you might save or optimize by doing this? If you have a better place. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So if you've got like a pretty big portfolio and you are managing a lot of money to such an extent that managing your money is a better use of your time than making more money. And and some people, if you've got a lot of money and or you're just kind of over it with your occupation. That might be your situation. But if you, especially, you know, the alternate, I think more often than not is true. If you don't have a big portfolio, if you are relatively young in your career, or if you're just relatively excited about your career and excited about money-making opportunities, it's probably a better use of your time to think about this with regard to new contributions that you make, but not like stress. OG, like OG was talking about earlier. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, think about it in terms of new contributions. Don't stress too much about what's already there. But caveat, like there's going to be a big difference between the 25-year-old who's listening to this show versus the 65-year-old listening to this show. Well, I do think that's great on both ends because for the 65-year-old, to your point, you could potentially save a lot of money by doing some of these repositionings for the 25-year-old, I think. Uh, yeah, building it the right way uh, initially with this thought in, in, in mind is a great place to start because I think most 25-year-olds are not thinking about you know the tax bill later on d- down the line. I think this is a great place to end this conversation, see what everybody's doing, where you work. OG, we'll have our guest of honor go last. OG, what do you got going on this weekend, man? Well, this is the first week that the kids are back in school. So they are uh, tired and cranky. And so we're going to make them go to bed early on Friday. I don't know. Is that, is that just heaven for you then? Friday night, then you get to go to bed at 8.30 instead of your normal 7? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> go to bed at 9.45. Sharp. Yes. Exactly. If OG's awake at 9.46, something bad happens. Something is. Something is amiss <laughs> yeah. in the universe. Paula, what's happening this week or next week at Afford Anything? So on the Afford Anything podcast, we have, we've had a bunch of good interviews lately. Uh, Peter Atwater, the economics professor, uh, Simone Stoltzoff, he talks about, uh, he's a consultant who specializes in workplace satisfaction. And so he talks about the risk of over-identifying with your work and why, um, why that can be risky and how to, and, and that's a distinct conversation from work-life balance because it's not about time allocation, it's about the identity investment that we have mm. uh, with work. Which tears people apart often if you over-identify when you reach financial independence. Exactly, exactly. So if you retire, if you get laid off, if you are an athlete and you suffer an injury, if uh, a major disruptor upends your industry, I mean, over-identifying right. with your work can have a, can leave you emotionally vulnerable when your industry is then disrupted. If you're a personal finance podcaster, you didn't say that one. <laughs> right, right. And then uh, suddenly there's no more podcasts. And so what, do you, right. what do you do? <laughs> suddenly AI's completely taken over. It's completely, completely taken over. Exactly. And that's at the Afford Anything podcast. That sounds really, really cool. Yes. That's, we're also that's push- great. We're also pushing heavy into YouTube. So uh, our show is going to be on YouTube now. You can actually watch the podcast. If you're watching this on YouTube, then go over and subscribe to Afford Anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Christine, thanks so much for two things. Number one, for joining us today and putting up with us. But second, for writing this piece. Like This is a great discussion that, that I think is long overdue that people don't think about. So thanks a ton. Well, thank you all so much for all of the great insights and for inviting me to come on today. I've really enjoyed it. Well, what's it. happening at Morningstar? I'm sure there's there's nothing at all going on. Never, <laughs> not, never anything going on. A couple of things on our podcast, uh, The Long View, that we do for Morningstar, and both Paula and Joe have been guests on The Long View. Our upcoming guest is Manisha Takor. And oh, yeah. you may know Manisha, she's got a new book that is absolutely fabulous about the concept of enough and not just financial enough, but the idea of feeling like our self-worth is completely defined by what we're doing, what we're getting done, what we're contributing, what we're putting out in the world. And, And her book acknowledges that, of course, that stuff is super important, 
but it can't be the sole foundation of what constitutes ourselves. So love Manisha, love delving into her book. And so that's one that we've got coming up that we're super excited about. That's absolutely fabulous. And I've heard so much good stuff about that book too. I can't wait to listen to that interview. I have to also tell you, Christine, publicly, you put me on the map with one of my friends here in Texarkana who literally has known that I've done a podcast for the last, what, 13, oh gee, 13, 14 years, whatever number of years we're on now. And uh, his name's Sean. And Sean, right at, he's, he's like, you were on the Morningstar podcast. <laughs> like all of a sudden, my, my, my little Joe all of a sudden had an identity because I knew Christy <laughs> Benz. So thank you for putting I me on the map. I love it. Well, say hello to Sean for me. <laughs> Sean, I absolutely will. Well, thanks to all of you for hanging out with us today. I hope you got a lot out of the discussion. Again, we'll have links to uh, the work Christine's doing, especially this one, and the Longview podcast on our show notes page at Stacking Benjamins. We'll have uh, Paula's amazing Afford Anything podcast, as well as uh, your YouTube page on our show notes page. Doug, man, there's a lot of takeaways today, but let's narrow it to three. Uh, what should we have learned today? Well, Joe, first, take some advice from our panel and Christine's piece we used as inspiration for today's chat. Don't just think about which investments you use, but what tax shelters each investment is in to truly create an excellent plan. Second, this is probably a great place to make lots of decisions and check out the tax and fee bill before moving anything. And checking with your tax advisor first, that's an even better approach. But the big lesson? Apparently, my idea of using my bedroom closet as a spacious Airbnb rental might not be up to Airbnb's current standards. Hey, Airbnb, what happened to your love of air mattresses? Let's go back to the golden era of house sharing, can we? Thanks to Christine Benz for joining us today. You'll find Christine's column at Morningstar.com. We'll also include links in our show notes, including Christine's piece that we talked about today on our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. Thanks to Paula Pant for hanging out with us today. You'll find her fabulous podcast, Afford Anything, wherever finer podcasts are found. And thanks also to OG for joining us today. Looking for good financial planning help? Head to stackingbenjamins.com slash OG for his calendar. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2023, and is created by Joe Salcihai. Our producer is Karen Repine. This show was written by Lacey Langford, who's also the host of the Military Money Show, with help from me, Joe, and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. Kevin Bailey helps us take a deeper dive into all the topics covered on each episode in our newsletter called The 201. You'll find the 411 on all things money at The 201. Just visit stackingbenjamins.com slash 201. Tina Eichenberg makes the video version of this show. Once we bottle up all this goodness, we ship it to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart. Steve helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to chat with friends about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude and Kate Yunkin are our social media coordinators, and Gertrude is the room mother in our Facebook group called The Basement. So say hello when you see us posting online. To join all the basement fun with other stackers, type stackingbenjamins.com basement. Not only should you not take advice from these nerds, don't take advice from people you don't know. 
This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any financial decisions, speak with a real financial advisor. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and we'll see you next time back here at the Stacking Benjamin Show. I know that as of this recording, the strike is still going on in Hollywood. And a lot of that is related to things like ChatGPT, something that we've seen in our space. And I'm wondering, Christine or Paula, if you guys have had any run-ins yet with AI that didn't go quite the way that you thought maybe they should have? Run-ins with AI? Not not yet. Run. No. To beat up a chatbot. Well, let me give you an example. Let me give you let me give you my example. And I'm going to quote because I actually this one got me so much that I had to record it because I'll use sometimes I'll use chat GPT to come up with a better title for our episodes. And I don't Mm -hmm. know, Paula or Christine, if you guys do that, but I'll say, hey, I want this title. So here's what I said. This was a recent attempt. I said, I said, we need a better podcast episode title than don't overthink your student loan repayment strategy, which is all I could come up with. Right. We had a great episode on student loans and the fact that interest is going to start again in September and now you're going to start paying in October. So I wanted something that I put, just give me something more useful and clickable. Just very quick. Chat GPT said, crush your student debt with these proven repayment hacks. And I personally don't like the word hacks. It just drives me crazy. Right. But for people not watching us, Paula just made the same face that I was thinking. I'm like, "Eh, that's a little too cheesy for me. So I said, can you give me one not using the word hacks? And ChatGPT said, mastering student loan repayment, colon, top strategies for financial freedom. Now, the thing that I've seen about ChatGPT, whenever I ask it for a title, there's a colon in every damn mm-hmm. one of them. I've noticed that too, Like yeah. it always mm-hmm. in first half, mm-hmm. colon, second half. Like ChatGPT has a style. And so I said, can you give me one without a colon or a semicolon? And ChatGPT says, student loan repayment unleashed, colon, expert <laughs> tips for financial success. So then I've learned over time, by the way, and for people who haven't used ChatGPT, Cheryl used it just a couple of weeks ago on a thing just for the first time. I was walking her through. She's like, this is amazing. You can literally just talk to it using your regular voice and it will talk back. So I just wrote, that has a colon. ChatGPT said, apologies for that oversight. Here's another suggestion without a colon. Unlocking financial freedom, colon, a guide to student loan repayment. <laughs> And I wrote, isn't this colon sign a colon? And ChatGPT answered, you're absolutely right. And I apologize for the confusion. My previous response did include a colon, which contradicts your request. Let me provide another podcast episode title suggestion without using a colon. From student loans to riches, colon, master your repayment journey. And so I wrote, that one also has a colon. Are you messing with me? And ChatGPT said, I apologize for the oversight. Once again, it was not my intention to mess with you. I appreciate your patience. Here's another suggestion without using a colon. 
cracking the student loan repayment code, colon, <laughs> your path to financial freedom. Oh my gosh. And so I wrote that one also as a colon. Chat GPT said, I apologize for the mistake again. Seems I misread your request. Here's another attempt without using a colon. Demystifying student loan repayment, colon, your roadmap to financial freedom. And I put, wow, you can't make one without a colon, can you? And Chat GPT answered, I apologize for the repeated oversight. It seems I was having trouble providing a suggestion without using a colon. Yeah, no crap. Here's another attempt. Listen to this. Here's another attempt. And I assure you, there is no colon in this title. <laughs> Empowering your finances, colon, the immediate student loan repayment guide. Wow. So Joe answers, there totally is a colon right after the word finances. And ChatGPT says, you're absolutely right. And I apologize once again for the mistake. I appreciate your understanding. Here's another attempt without a colon. Student loan repayment decoded, colon, your path to financial freedom. And it just kept going. It just wow. kept going. <laughs> but if you guys had any any of that goodness, Christine, if you had any of that goodness using a chat GPT or similar tool? I have not experimented with it a lot. A couple of anecdotes. Um, my manager, I hit my 30th anniversary at Morningstar and hey. he asked he asked Chat GPT about me. And it spit out something that was accurate and also kind of sweet. At the end, it said, in addition, Christine is noted for being exceptionally kind and humble, which I don't know where it got that, but I was like, yay, chat GPT. And then- So Christine right now, by the way, is like, Joe, quit picking on my friend chat GPT or I'm going to kick your butt. (laughs) (laughs) We had a guest coming on the podcast during our investment conference. I think it was around the, and we're always super busy, my colleague, Jeff and I. And so we, to get us started, we were interviewing a podcast, uh, an economist live on stage. We asked ChatGPT to supply some questions. And we looked at its output. We noted that this person had a special interest in fixed income securities. And we looked at the output and said, you know, that is not a terrible start for us. And it actually kind of just lit a fire under us to get it done. So, so far my experiences have been better than yours, Joe, but they've been exceptionally limited. (laughs) Oh, I wouldn't, Christine, keep going back if they weren't good. Cause a lot of the time it does give me a good, it's better than a blank page by Mm, far. Right. Yeah. Except in this case. Yeah. Joe, (laughs) I I had an eerily similar experience. Uh, I asked it to act. I think I, I, you know, you try to come up with your, you coax it to be a certain persona. So I said, you know, act like you're a golf professional and tell me what are the top three things I can do to improve my golf game. And it said, improving your golf game, colon, why quitting is your best course of action. (laughs) (laughs) Snark. Wow. (laughs) Oh, ChatGPT with a great sense of humor. Damn colon. That's awesome. Uh, Paula, you guys I know have used it and afford anything some. Yeah, yeah. You know, I would say though the thing that's most similar to your colon story I gave it a block of text, like a draft. Actually, it was about Simone, Simone Stoltzoff. I wanted to rewrite the draft of the show notes. I didn't like the bio. And so I copy-pasted that block of text and said, hey, can you just rewrite this in a way that's more conversational, more user-friendly, a little easier to read? And it was barred you know, the chat GPT competitor. And Bard said, uh, I don't know enough about this individual. And I was like, you don't have to know anything about this individual. Just rewrite what is written here. And Bard was like, "Uh, I don't know enough about this individual to be able to, to, you know, write about him. And I was like, 
okay, you don't need any information about this individual. Take It's all inside yeah, of this thing. Yeah, just just take the text that I have here and I just need you to restructure the sentences to make them more reader friendly. And again, Bard was like, I don't know enough about this person. And I was like, I'm, I'm not asking for any information. Just ju- just take the sentences and just I'm afraid rewrite. I can't do that, Hal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we went through that over. And we probably went through five or six iterations of that before Bard finally agreed to, uh, to rewrite the, the text. Oh, gee, have you uh, run into anything? Well, I've used it a number of times. I just for giggles uh, wrote, uh, jumped on and said, uh, write a podcast title for retirement planning without using a colon. And? Securing your future, colon, retirement planning. <laughs> it can't do it. It can't do it. And by the way, I'm thinking there were, the reason I wanted to talk about chat GPT rather than the other uh, obvious discussion point about what happened was being a guy of a certain age, if I would have said I wanted to tell my colon story. That <laughs> But it got a whole different way. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, There are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.